Hello and welcome to Eat This Podcast with me, Jeremy Churthers. Today, some food rituals. At the end of this week, on Thursday, Jewish households will sit down to the first Seder, or Passover meal. The following day, Good Friday, is the start of the big Christian Easter celebrations. And of course, both of those are intimately connected with food. The Passover Seder, in particular, is a meal full of ritual that goes back to the last night of the Jews in Egypt. And as they prepared to leave, what happens? Moses gives them some instructions from God. Susan Weingarten is a food historian who lives in Jerusalem. And what does God tell the Jews to do at this point? He tells them to eat. (laughs) And he doesn't just tell them to eat. He tells them what to eat, how to cook it, what to eat it with. You have a whole um, description of the final meal that they ate before they left Egypt. And the menu? God tells the Jews to sacrifice a lamb so that they can use its blood to mark their doorways. That way, the angel of death will know to pass over Jewish households and spare their firstborn sons. And lamb is a significant choice. The Egyptians thought of lamb as an abomination. So the Jews were eating the abomination of the Egyptians. They were proclaiming their own identity as not Egyptian, as not Egyptian slaves anymore, but as free Jews by eating this abomination. So this first meal sets the Jews' identity as a free people. And God goes further because he says that the meal should take place every year to be a memory through generations. In other words, he's setting up the Passover meal right from the start as a reminder of their delivery from slavery. To begin with, Jews celebrated together, taking a picnic to the temple in Jerusalem and eating there. But after the Romans destroyed the temple in the year 70, the rabbis reinvented the Passover Seder as a ritual meal to be eaten in the home. And what else do you find on the Seder table? So you have the shank bone, which is the memory of the Passover sacrifice. The shank bone is is called the zroa, the outstretched arm. And it's in memory of the outstretched arm of God who delivered his people from slavery. We also have uh, the bitter herbs in memory of the bitterness that the Jews suffered in Egypt. And the bitter herbs are can be lettuce. Nowadays our lettuce isn't bitter, but wild lettuce was certainly bitter. And wild lettuce would be what people would pick all over Palestine And then, in the Middle Ages, Jews moved further north and further east in Europe. And they just, in April, weren't any leaves available to eat. So they started using the root of horseradish. Horseradish is called, in German, Meerrettich. And the Meer, at the beginning sounded like the Hebrew word for bitter, mar. So presumably that's what gave them the idea to use that as bitter herbs. 
So now on my Seder plate, I will have lettuce and possibly endives, but also grated horseradish for the bitterness. The other things on the table are a hard-boiled egg, or no, sorry, not hard-boiled, roasted, because the Passover sacrifice itself originally in Egypt was to be roasted and not boiled. So I don't boil my egg, I roast it in the oven. Sometimes it explodes if I'm not careful. <laughs> um, and that sits there as just like an Easter egg, right? It's a memory of birth and renewal. And you also have salt water in which you dip various herbs at the very beginning of the Seder. And the salt water may or may not represent the tears of the Jews. But there's something else on the Seder table these days, and it's actually the thing I remember most clearly about the Passover meal, because it was delicious. It's called haroset. Haroset does not appear in these instructions. That is, God's instructions to the Israelites for their last meal in Egypt. And Susan Weingarten has just written the book on haroset. It doesn't appear until the 3rd century, when there's a collection of Jewish laws called the Mishnah. And then they say, is Haroset obligatory or not? And this discussion um, implies that Haroset is already there, but we've no idea how it got there, we've no idea where it came from, um, and we've no idea when it got there when between the exodus from Egypt and the third century Mishnah, when did it turn up? Why did it turn up? What is it? What is it? Exactly. <laughs> and it doesn't tell us anything about what it is, except to say that one rabbi who was alive at the time when the temple was there says, I heard merchants in Jerusalem saying, come and buy your spices for the haroset. So we know that there were spices in haroset, but we don't know anything else about it at all. Until the rabbis of the Talmud, which is yet another collection of Jewish laws, start talking about what should go into it, what it symbolized, what it's there for. From my memory, um, which is a long time ago, it was a sort of mixture of apples and nuts and um, cinnamon, I think, maybe. I, I, it's a long time ago since I last celebrated a Passover. Is that what they were making then? Do you have any idea? Your haroset is typically Ashkenazi. That means it is typical of the Jews of Northern Europe. Apples, raisins, chopped up fine, cinnamon, nuts and sweet red wine, <laughs> right? Um, the Sephardim, the Jews of Spain, North Africa and the, um, and the, and the East would make their haroset based on dates. So Ashkenaz apples, Sephardim dates and in the middle, in the Balkans, they, made, they based it on raisins. And so the tastes change through history, geographically in different places. Some of the earliest recipes that we have 
four haroset, which come from rabbis who are telling people what to do. Rabbis like to tell people what to do. People don't always do what they say, which, and so you get a very interesting back, back and forth about haroset. But the rabbis tell them to put vinegar in. Now, nowadays, nobody puts vinegar in their haroset. It's always entirely sweet. But there are lots of times in history when you get it sweet and sour or when you get it um, totally sour. And sometimes the bitter herbs go into the haroset and are part of the mixture of sweet and bitter and then eventually the very bitter things come out of the haroset and today it's almost entirely sweet. I only met one person that I interviewed who remembered that his mother's family had put vinegar in and he thought it was disgusting. <laughs> but in addition to telling people what to do, rabbis also like to disagree with one another. So, right. So I'm, I'm assuming there was discussion of what's in the, the haroset and also what it means. Absolutely. The, the discussion of what's in and what it means begins in the Talmud. And they say that haroset is in memory of the bricks, the clay for the bricks that the Israelite slaves made in Egypt. They used clay to make bricks. At one point, Pharaoh was so nasty to them that having provided them with straw for the clay, he said, why should I provide it? They should go and get the straw. And this, this is in the book of Exodus, in the Bible. So that the rabbis used to say that the haroset is in memory of the clay and the spices are in memory of the straw. So that... You had to have spices that you could actually see bits of. Some people even um, put all sorts of spices strewn on top of their haroset so that you could remember the straw. And there's a marvellous uh, rabbinic account from Italy where he says the haroset should be ground up and you should also grind up a bit of brick put in it. So not just memory of brick, but actual brick. Now, another rabbi says, this is a load of old rubbish. And how could anybody be so crazy as to do this? And the word haroset, he says, is like the word cheres. Now, cheres means a potsherd. And clearly, some scribe meant to write haroset but he dropped off the last t at the end, and he wrote cheres. So people read it as you should grind up the potsherd, and this is why. And he says this is crazy, we shouldn't do it. This he said in the 18th century. Today there are still Jews that grind up a little bit of potsherd to put in their, in their haroset, in memory of the brick. Um. The consistency, there seems to be some sort of disputation as to whether it's in memory of the clay and straw from which the bricks were made, or is it in memory of the blood of the marking or the blood of the children of Israel? I mean, was that another 
argument among the rabbis? That was a very early argument of the rabbis. I think people became uncomfortable with the idea that it was in memory of the blood. And nobody nowadays remembers that or talks about it, even though it is in the Jerusalem Talmud. There are a lot of connections with blood and haroset through history. In medieval France, there were the blood libels when people accused Jews of putting blood into their matzah, into their unleavened bread, the blood of um, stolen Christian babies. Now, it seems to me a bit silly to think that matzah should have blood in it because it doesn't look as if it has such a thing, whereas haroset, which is this mush which is reddish and which has wine in it, looks much more of a possibility for this horrible, um, baseless accusation. And in fact, there were two trials which took place in France in the Middle Ages where they accused Jews of stealing Christian babies and putting their blood in the haroset. And the protocols are still extant. And on bo in both cases, the... Uh, there were fair judges um, said, you know, this is a ridiculous accusation and it's not true and we don't, and fortunately, they let the Jews off. Although the original Jew who was accused had already died of torture. But in other cases, the blood libel stuck and uh, they just burnt the Jews at the stake. There was a rabbi in the 18th century who said, you shouldn't use red wine at your Seder in case people think it's blood. So the relationship of haroset and blood has been not stressed, let's say, <laughs> over the centuries. And there was a very nice rabbinical uh, concept, which also began in the Middle Ages, when rabbis in northern France said that Haroset should have in it everything that the Jewish people are allegorized as in the Song of Songs. And the Song of Songs is full of these beautiful allegories of the Jewish people as a garden of nuts, as pomegranates. And so the ingredients were set as the fruits and spices of the Song of Songs. And they, that allowed you quite a lot of liberty in what you did put in. Nowadays, the only Jews that put pomegranates in their haroset are Persian Jews, presumably because pomegranates were a bit more accessible than they were in uh, medieval England. And the, that, I think, is the best haroset, the Persian <laughs> haroset with, with the pomegranates. It's wonderful. When, when you were talking to people... Did they all understand? Did they all internalize what, what they were doing when they were making the haroset? Or were they just doing what they'd always done? What was unbelievable was that I would talk to these people in their houses, men and women. Strangely enough, although it's usually women that do these things, haroset is something that's very often made by men. They would sometimes quote me, without knowing they were quoting, words of rabbis from hundreds and hundreds of years earlier. They would say, yes, it's in memory of the, of the bricks. Sometimes people would say it's in memory of the mortar. But that's, I 
due to, I think, a confusion in the sources, and that's not wasn't relevant. But they would definitely talk about it, and they would talk about it's a memory of the slavery, and it would be, yes, an active memory handed down, just like it says, it's it said prospectively in the Book of Exodus. And the men, and the men making Haroset don't associate traditional Jewish men with doing anything in the kitchen. Um, so. <laughs> Absolutely. I, I wondered about that, and I did think about it quite a lot. And it seemed to me that, part, that quite often, when you got Jews from different communities married to each other, the man would want the charoset that his mother had made, and his wife would say, so you make it then. <laughs> However, in the Yemenite Jewish community, the man and the woman make it together. Now, this is because of a corrupt text <laughs> in the Jerusalem Talmud. The Yemenite Jews went for the Jerusalem Talmud, whereas most other Jews today go for the Babylonian Talmud. But the Yemenites were cut off from the mainstream for a long time, and they kept to the Jerusalem Talmud. Now, in the Jerusalem Talmud, when it talks about Haroset, it says, you make it with this. According to the grammatical genders of the words, it could also be read as, she makes it with him. So, Yemenite men and women do sometimes make their Haroset together. In other communities, um, making Haroset is considered to be such a difficult task and one demanding of such strength that the men help the women. Now, this happens in Iraq and in the Iraqi diaspora in India, where they boil uh, dates for a very, very, very long time and then squeeze out the juices through muslin. And this squeezing through muslin, which means twisting and twisting, is considered to be a very, very difficult task. And the men give a hand. Also, because there's the discussion that I mentioned earlier of whether haroset is obligatory, whether it's a mitzvah. Now, if it's a mitzvah, then it's not beneath the dignity of a man to do it. <laughs> and these days, have, have, have women objected to any of this? Oh, women, of course. There are feminist additions to the Seder plate. There's a very nice story about people who add an orange to a Seder plate. There's a legend, an urban legend, about a woman who asked her rabbi whether women could lead the service in the synagogue. And the rabbi was horrified. He said, a woman leading a service, it would be as out of place as an orange on a Seder plate. And so naturally, lots of women decided that they're going to put oranges on their Seder plate. <laughs> <laughs> so you've got, you've got this Haroset appearing in, the, in, in, in literature, as it were, in the third century, and you've got the rabbis reinventing Judaism after the fall of the temple when the land of Israel was a Roman colony, have you actually been able to trace the idea of 
something like Harosa to a Roman tradition? Yes, I think so. Um, I think what happened was that when the Greeks and Romans arrived in Palestine, they saw the Jews eating their matzah and their roast lamb with bitter herbs. And they said, bitter herbs, they're dangerous. They're not good for you. The doctors don't approve. So the Jews said, oh, what should we do? Well, you can dip it in something that will take away all the harmful effects. And you actually find a discussion of this in the Talmud, of the fact that haroset takes away the harmful effects of the bitter herbs. And you also have a Roman recipe in the one Roman cookery book that survives, Apicius, which says that you can use this particular dip for lettuce and endives to take away its harmful effects. Exactly the same wording in different languages, of course, as in the Talmud. And the dip that they use is called embama. Embama comes from the Greek word to dip. Susan Weingarten. And that word embama, to dip, is related to embapto, and that takes us straight to baptism, which is as neat a link as I can contrive to an Easter food. But unlike the Passover Seder with thousands of years of history, this one happens to be 50 years old this year, and as a ritual of memory, it may be less than 15 years old. So here's one version I found on YouTube. God sent his son Jesus, who was free of sin, pure as this sugar, from heaven to be with people like you and me. She's making something called Resurrection Rolls. Jesus was pure and so sweet like this marshmallow, yet people but not didn't too difficult to make a marshmallow coated in butter, people sugar, and cinnamon, and wrapped tightly in pastry. So he took all of our sins onto himself, just like this marshmallow rolling in that oily butter. So that the point is sins, that when you bake the rolled-up dough, it's cargo of marshmallow body, oily butter, and sweet spice melts. So when you open up the ball, it's empty. Just like Jesus' tomb after the resurrection. You can find more or less saccharine versions of this recipe all over the internet. Sometimes they're called resurrection rolls, sometimes they're called empty tomb rolls. And lots of them tell you how to use the recipe to teach your little ones about the magic of Easter. Fear not, for Jesus is alive. He is risen. Not one of them that I've found credits the original source. That's Mrs. Edna Holmgren of Eden Prairie outside Minneapolis. In 1969, 50 years ago, her recipe won her a prize of $25,000. She never spent it. She, <laughs> she uh, had it in long-term CDs. And at that time, long-term CDs were paying about 17, 18, 19% interest. So she traveled. 
She went to the Holy Land. She. My name is Lois Long, and my mother was name was Edna Holmgren Walker. She won the Pillsbury Bake Off in 1969. Well, actually, she bought two things. She bought two RCA Victor color TVs, one for herself and one for us, and that was the first our first color TV in 1969. Edna was the city clerk of Eden Prairie, and by all accounts, an adventurous and independent woman. She was kind of a she was kind of a Renaissance lady. I mean, she was before her time for sure. So she worked till she was till she was ninety and drove her car. She died at ninety six. Uh, always said, "I miss I miss my job." I mean, she loved. Working. I was really excited to have made contact with Edna's daughter Lois Long. I wanted to know all about her mother's recipe. Pillsbury changed the name from Edna's original, which was Puff Ups, to Magic Marshmallow Crescent Puffs, for reasons that'll become obvious. How did it all start? She was on a plane actually flying to Florida to visit her sister, and the gal sitting next to her was a cook at a dude ranch in Colorado. Two ladies started talking, and they discovered they both loved to bake. And so the lady from the dude ranch said, well, she made these breakfast rolls where she actually used the sweet roll dough that you make yourself, you know, from scratch, and then put a uh, marshmallow in it and then raise it, and that's what she fed the people on the, the dude ranch. And so Mother came home, and she said, well, okay, I'll give that a shot. So she sent it in like just like that, with making her own roll dough and then putting marshmallow in it, and nothing happened. And then she did it again the second year. She upped the ante a little bit by rolling the, the marshmallow in butter and, well, actually, our margarine and cinnamon and sugar. Mm-hmm. And did the same thing and sent that in and nothing. Well, then the next year was the first year that crescent rolls. Are you familiar with crescent rolls? I am. But in case you're not, it's a tube of dough that you crack open and unfold. Inside are eight pre-cut triangles of dough that you can roll up and bake. Pillsbury was keen to promote their ready-made doughs in the bake-off. So that year, there was a specific category for refrigerated dough along with cake mixes and flour. And so she did the same thing. She rolled the marshmallow in oli and cinnamon and sugar, and then that center melts, and so you've got the uh, gooey marshmallow and cinnamon and sugar in it. Put a little powdered sugar on the top, and voila. So she put the same recipe in effectively three times. Well, uh, not really. The The first two times were with actual made-from-scratch sweet roll dough that right. you have to let rise and knead and, you know, do all that stuff to it. And, of course, the way the world has gone, everything that wants to be quicker and faster, and so when crescent rolls came out, yeah, it, uh, she used the crescent rolls, and it was a winner. She was in the right, right spot at the right time. Were you a tester? Did you have to taste them? Oh, yes. I mean, she made stuff for us, yeah, and then we tried. Oh, yes. Did you reject any? Uh, no, she was, she was a good cook. <laughs> she kept us in cookies and <laughs> lots of things. She was, but she was also a good cook as well as a baker. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. She was the oldest of 11 children. Wow. And uh, never finished high school because she had to go to work. And so, um, which wasn't uncommon in those days, you know. There wasn't enough money for all the, the feed all the kids in the, in the household. And so, so. You said your mom worked in... Eden Prairie was she, was she was she kind of a celebrity after she won the competition? Oh yeah, she really was because <laughs> she was the city clerk also in Eden Prairie. 
So many, you know, people knew her from coming into the the office and things. So yeah, she she was pretty. Yeah, she was. <laughs> and what did she tell you about having to go? Because they have to go and actually make the dish for the competition, don't they? What did she tell you about that? They're usually in hotels, and they use the big ballroom and set up all these 100 stoves and cooking stations. Uh, and then they have uh, Pillsbury employees who are bringing food to them. They have enough food to make a recipe three times. My mother made hers twice, but she said I w- she said she was happy with the first time. And so, but she said I just made it again because I had time, you know. <laughs> and uh, so there, so she was done early, and she was. She said she made up her mind. She wasn't going to be concerned about the other people. She was going going to go and have a good time and just enjoy the experience. And uh, so she did. <laughs> I've 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 read the recipe. It doesn't seem like it would take all that long to make. Oh, it doesn't. That, that's why uh, uh, it caught the judge's eye, as I'm sure. Creativity is one of the things that they're looking for. Certainly ease, and like I said, this was the first year the crescent roll dough was in the, was in the contest. So it was the uniqueness, I think, of having the, the crescent roll dough, you know, at, at just, uh, like I said, she was in the right place at the right time. Have you been tempted to enter yourself? You know, I mean, and I think Mother would have really liked that, I know, but I never was. And it wasn't that I didn't want to upstage her or anything, because I sure couldn't upstage her. I mean, she'd, she'd won. So, but uh, I guess I was busy with raising children and uh, doing other things, and so I just never got uh, into into doing that. So Edna's magic marshmallow crescent puffs, meanwhile, were going from strength to strength. Uh, Pillsbury had a connection with Kraft, I you know, like Kraft uh, cheese, Kraft whatever, Kraft. And Kraft were the ones that made the, the crescent roll dough, actually. And they also had the Ole, and they also made marshmallows. So this was a huge moneymaker for, for, for Pillsbury besides. Uh, for numerous weeks after the bake-off, you could not find the crescent rolls in any of the grocery stores in the, in the local Twin City area here. They were sold out. That's yeah. So, so I mean, it was it was a good deal for them because Kraft made all three of the ingredients that were in it, any, everything except the cinnamon and sugar. In 1988, Pillsbury decided to celebrate the Bake Off's birthday by creating a Hall of Fame for the ten most popular recipes. That included Edna's. So Pillsbury invited her to the party in Washington D.C. She wasn't going to go. And I, well, she was 88, but anyway, but she said, I said, oh, mother, you know, we have to go. I mean, I'll, I'll go with you. I'll help you. You know, if you need help with anything, I'll be there to help you. And so I said, you need to be there to experience this. And so, so we went and I'm, uh, she loved being there. The first morning they had a nice big breakfast and then they um, had to introduce the winners and said a little thing about each one of them. Then they took us on a tour of Washington of the monuments. Then in the evening they had a banquet. There again, the winners were honored, and they, she received a beautiful Swarovski crystal bowl on a stand with a little metal plaque on the bottom telling about her recipe. And there was, I think, uh, two of them had died, and so some of their family members. But the, every every one of the ten were represented. So. I was so glad that I insisted that she go, and she was healthy enough to go. I mean, she had arthritis and some um, little bit of high blood pressure, but that, that was not a problem. We <laughs> we worked around that. So, you say she went to the Holy Land. Mm-hmm. Are you aware of of this transition that the roles have made in in some people's hands to become 
Oh, what do they call them? Resurrection rolls? Oh, yeah. Oh, yes, I am. That was back, yeah. They, it, and because it's like the empty tomb, yeah. Mm-hmm. Do you know how that happened? I have no idea. So it wasn't Edna who repurposed her recipe as resurrection rolls. And as I said at the outset, none of the resurrection roll or empty tomb recipes that I've seen give Edna any credit. I'm happy to be able to fix that here. Actually, the earliest connection I've been able to find online is on the Pillsbury Hall of Fame website. Back in January 2011, a commenter wrote, We also make these at Easter and call them resurrection rolls to represent the empty tomb of Christ. But in her mother's papers, Lois found a copy of a blurb for resurrection rolls that Edna herself had dated Easter 2005, so they'd already been taken over by then. That version seems to be a little confused over whether it's the oven or the roll itself that represents the tomb, but all the other bits are in place. I do find it a bit odd that Jews have celebrated with essentially the same food, apart from variations in the recipe for Haroset, for a couple of thousand years, while Christians have no universal Easter food, or at least none that I could find. Susan Weingarten thinks that may be because Passover is centered on the home, while Easter is centered on the church. That sounds plausible, but let me know if you know differently. Email jeremy at eatthispodcast.com or tweet at eatpodcast. Lots of people to thank today. Susan Weingarten and Lois Long, obviously, but also the very helpful people at the Eden Prairie Historical Society who put me in touch with Lois after my own sleuthing came to a dead end. I do hope you enjoyed this episode. If you did, maybe you'd care to leave a review or recommend it to a friend. You can even join the select band of wonderful people who support the show with hard cash. It's easy at eatthispodcast.com slash donate. I'll be back in a couple of weeks. Until then, from me, Jeremy Churfus, and Eat This Podcast, goodbye and thanks for listening. <laughs>